1 Peter chapter 5, going all the way to the end, Lord willing. Verses 7 through, yep, 14. Oh, yeah. <laughs> First Peter 5, 7 to 14, and a side trip to Mark chapter 4. I could give you, if you guys want, I could give you the outline right off the bat. Um, I've got four kind of main points, and the first two are the, are the uh, meatiest, uh, but here they are. The first one is we're going to see that Peter once again reminds us to cast our cares. We touched uh, on that on Sunday. And then the second point is the title of the message, and it's Resist the Roar. Resist the Roar. That'll make sense, I think, when we get there. Cast your cares, resist the roar. It's hard to say. Um, The third point is Peter's prayer for the persecuted. You can see that in the nearly the last verses. And then the very last verses are his closing comments. Okay? Cast your cares, resist the roar, pray for prayer for the persecuted, and closing comments. All right, here we go. Peter is writing to a persecuted church. If you if you have missed every single other message through the book of First Peter, um, this is the last time we're I guess we're going to say this about the book of First Peter that he has been writing to a persecuted church uh, to give you perspective to see uh, the context of the folks that he's writing to. He's writing to Christians who have been hunted down. Their neighbors, their best friends perhaps, have been rolled in pitch, set aflame uh, while they're living, uh, fed to wild dogs, perhaps fed to the lions, as you've heard uh, that happened during uh, parts of the Roman Empire with the Christians. It's into that danger that Peter has has written this letter. And he's coming to the close now. And the, the place that we begin tonight... In verse 7, he says, To these people, who believe it or not, have it much worse than even we do, says to them, Cast your cares upon the mighty God. Sunday, just by way of review, we, we saw how important it is to be clothed in humility, right? Especially when you're facing persecution. But at any time, the reason is that God, it says, resists the proud. You see that in verse 5, I think. And literally it means he goes to battle against the proud. But he gives grace, that is unmerited favor, uh, goodness, graciousness that you don't deserve. He resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So Peter says, look, take the low position. Think higher of other people, lower of yourself. Because God, just like we do, loves the underdog. Right? God battles the proud, but he benefits the humble. He resists the proud, but he rewards the humble. Look at it, verse 6. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. That's what he wants to do. He wants to be able to lift you up, but if you're already there, he has to bring you down before he can do that. Therefore, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. See that word, the phrase, the mighty hand of God. We saw it first used in the book of Exodus. A reminder, this mighty God, the rescuer for the children of Israel, he humbles the proud, Pharaoh, but he lifts up the humble, the slaves, right? The children of Israel. Basically, the the thing to remember from last Sunday's message is this. Look, you take the lowest position and then just watch the mighty hand of God elevate you in due time. 
That brings us now to verse 7, and we, we began to touch on it on Sunday. Verse 7, casting all your cares, that is, anxieties, upon him, for he cares for you. Peter says, attached to that mighty hand of God is a mighty arm that saves, and attached to the mighty arm is a set of broad shoulders that can easily support your worst anxieties, your concerns, your worriers. I asked this Sunday, but I'll ask it again. How many worriers do we have? You'll, you'll confess, you'll admit. Okay, raise them high. <laughs> All right. I am a recovering worrier. I've decided I used to be a professional worrier. I've downgraded my status to amateur. Whether you're just an amateur or a seasoned professional or a gold medal Olympic winner, verse 7 speaks to you and to me. All about worry. Corey Ten Boom apparently was the one who said, maybe you've heard it, worry is just like a rocking chair. It's a lot of activity, a lot of motion, but nothing accomplished. You, you never go anywhere. And Jesus said much the same thing, did he not? He said, which, which one of you, raise your hand, this, you know, he would say it if he was saying it the way I say it, raise your hand if by worrying you can add an inch to your status. You can grow an inch. No? It says, which one of you, by worrying, can add a year, a day even, to your life? Hmm. Come to think about it, worry kind of is unproductive. Useless. And more than that, we just touched on it Sunday. And again, for me, it was kind of a whoa, an, an aha moment. More than just being unproductive... Worry is unfruitful, meaning it will make you unfruitful. I share this as well, but I understood the thing that helped me to become from a professional to an amateur worrier was when I understood that, wait, this is a sin. It's a sin because Jesus says, don't do it. So that helped me tremendously just to realize, okay, it's a sin. That means I don't have to worry. It's not something I'm, I absolutely have to do that I can't help, but no, it's something that I can overcome. And then for years and years, I just was like, okay, well, it's a sin because Jesus says it's a sin, and that's, that's a decent attitude to have. But what I discovered as I was studying for last Sunday's message is, as with all things, God has reasons that he calls things sin. And with all things, it's because it will hurt us or, or, or hold us back. Um, I'm going to read to you three places in the, uh, in the synoptic Gospels. That's all the Gospels but John. And I want you guys to turn to Mark chapter 4, and you can meet me at the last one. But let me read, read to you three places where Jesus talks about these cares, that word, right, anxieties. Matthew 13, 22. He says, now he who receives seed among the thorns, that is the weeds, is he who hears the word and the anxieties, the cares of this world, and the deceitfulness of the riches choke the word, and he becomes unfruitful. Luke eight fourteen, a parallel passage, Jesus saying, now the ones that fell among thorns, like weeds, you could say, are those who, when they have heard, they go out and are choked with cares, anxiety. Then it says the riches and pleasures of this life bringing no fruit to maturity. I always lumped all of those together. I was like, okay, cares of the world, riches, pleasures. It's all hedonism. That's the thing. Well, no, this actually says 
that it's the anxiety uh, for some of us is that thing which keeps you from being fruitful. Well, I want to show you in black and white, Mark 4, 19. And you're going to want to keep uh, Mark chapter 4 because we're going to come back after this as well. But Mark 4, 19, same uh, parallel passage, Jesus speaking. He says, and the cares or anxieties of this world, it's the same word we see in First Peter, the, the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. All three places he says, look, worry, the reason, at least for me, this is how it clicked, the reason I'm calling it sin is because it makes you unfruitful. It takes that good fruit, uh, the, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, all of those things that you find in Galatians. He says, it takes all that stuff and just chokes it out. So that's why I don't want you to worry. No wonder the Scriptures call worry a sin. It chokes out even the Word. Isn't that crazy? Um, I've heard it said that the, that the Word will keep you from sin, and yet sin will keep you from the Word. Right? So if worry is a sin, that makes sense. Worry will keep you from the word, but the word can keep you from worry. So no wonder the scriptures call it sin. No wonder the devil loves it when he can get us to worry. No wonder verse 7 in our text. Again, you want to keep your finger there in Mark 4. But verse 7 in our text tells us to cast all our cares upon him. Not 90%. Not the easiest 90%, leaving the tough 10% to worry about. No, he says, casting all your cares upon him, for he cares for you. If we don't, we find ourselves unfruitful. And even the word can become choked out by worry. Got me thinking along these lines, the illustration. If worry is like weeds, and it is when you think about it, right? How often do you work really hard to plant a great garden, great, you know, water your grass, all that stuff. You have to really care for it. But then the weeds just come up like that. They don't need any effort at all. Worry is like the weeds. It comes back without any watering, without any special attention. Application time. You ready? Maybe tonight some of us, maybe all of us, need to do some weeding. You need to get on your knees and do some weeding. How often do you need to weed a garden? Pretty much when weeds come up, right? If you happen to have a garden that they come up every day, every minute, every hour, that's how often you need to weed. Matter of fact, look at verse 7. It says, casting all your cares upon him, for he cares for you. Interesting, the tense of that is the aorist uh, present participle. Most, for most of you, like, okay, I don't know what that means. But the, in, in plain English, what it means is this. It means to cast and keep casting. It means over and over and over again. Casting all your cares upon him. See, Peter's going to this same place. He says, look, the, attached to the mighty hand is a mighty arm. And attached to that mighty arm is one who has really big shoulders. And that person says to you, take my yoke upon you, for my burden is easy, my burden is light. And 
your, our, our understanding of that portion of Scripture is when basically Jesus is saying, look, if you will yoke yourself together with me, I will shoulder the burden. I will be the one to carry all the weight. So, the first application is just to keep casting your cares upon Him. Just keep piling them on. He can handle it. Keep piling them on. Okay? Maybe you heard about the guy who worried about everything. He wouldn't even cross the street for fear. He was consumed with so much fear and worry. He thought if he crossed the street, surely he was going to get run down by a bus. So he would come up to the same uh, corner every day and he'd turn around and go home. Well, one day, he just comes and confidently scampers across the street. His neighbor can't believe it. It's like, I just saw what you did. Friend, what happened to you? Well, I hired myself a professional worrier, George. Every time I'm tempted to worry, I just cast that worry on George's shoulders. I let him worry for me. Like, if I'm tempted to worry about my health, I say, that's not my worry. It's George's worry. If I want to worry about my family, it's not my worry. It's George's worry. If I want to start to worry about my career, it's not my worry. It's George's. Friend says, wow, that sounds great. I'm interested now. How much does something like that cost? 50000 a year. Well, how are you going to afford that? It's not my worry. It's George's. <laughs> that sort of breaks down when you're like, okay, wait. But, but it doesn't break down for us. Because we have the Lord of the universe. The, the one who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. You can cast your cares upon him over and over and over again. That's why it says in verse 7, cast all of your cares, not 85%, not 95%, not 99%, leaving the, the really difficult stuff for you to hold on to. No, cast all of your anxiety upon him. Maybe that's your very simple application this week. Every time you're tempted to worry, it's not my worry, it's Jesus. Every time you're tempted to worry, turn it into a prayer. Lord, here's that worry. Here's another one. Okay, I know it's only been two seconds. Here's another one. Eventually, I promise you, if you continue to do that, you'll have actually moments and minutes and maybe even hours of time without worry. One last testimony from me. It's not on my page, but sometimes I want to remind you guys. When I was 20, I worried about everything. And looking back, I didn't have anything to worry about. Now I have stuff to worry about. I have a son with autism. You know, where, how's he going to end up? All those things. But I don't worry. And it's simply because I understand that he really loves me. Which actually is the next point. Look at verse 7. Because it says, Casting all your cares, your anxiety upon him, for he cares for you. There's the crux of it. You've got to figure out whether you believe that. He cares for you. He really does love you. He really is paying attention. The Bible says that he, he notices you, He cares for you much more than even the birds of the air whom He feeds daily. Much more than the, the lilies of the valley whom He clothes uh, with splendor. Maybe your application for you tonight is to just ho- hover over those last four words of verse 7. Just hover over those words. He cares for you. And read it and believe it. He cares for you. Now maybe tonight you're like, 
okay, I believe it conceptually, but my problem is, if he cares for me, if he loves me, then why is he so silent, so quiet, seemingly so careless about me, so callous toward my fate? Maybe none of you would raise your hand and say, I, I feel that way. But if you do, I can tell you there was a whole group of guys that could relate to you. That not only thought that, but said that. Lord, don't you care? Turn to Mark 4. Uh, if Hopefully you have your finger still there. Interesting, right after Jesus has this, uh, this speech about how the word is choked out by worry... Mark 4, verse 35. On the same day when evening had come, that is the very same day that Jesus said, look, worry will choke out the word. It'll make you unfruitful. He said to them, said to his disciples, let us cross over to the other side. Now when they had left the multitude, they took him along in the boat as he was, and other little boats were also with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat so that it was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on a pillow. And they awoke and said to him, here it is, the same thing maybe you've been thinking. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Then he arose and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. But he said to them, why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? And they feared exceedingly and said to one another, now they found something else to fear. <laughs> Who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? This, that, this portion of scripture was in my quiet time today. And whenever that happens, I'm like, okay, I've got to share this. Because it just blows my mind that the Lord does this. You know, he, he uh, teaches and then he, he brings from another source and says, see, I wasn't kidding. Um, the, the picture here is of, of the guys freaking out, them asking him, actually having the, the, they're so freaked out that they actually say it with their lips, where we sometimes just think it, Lord, don't you care? Right? And he, they find him asleep on a pillow. They find him completely tranquil in the midst of a storm. They ask him that question, Lord, do you not care that we're perishing? And this is what hit me today in my quiet time. Isn't it not true? So often when we face trouble, when, when you're in the midst of a storm, and maybe you are tonight, and you, you notice his silence. Isn't it a shame, and, but so often true, that we mistake his calm for carelessness? His calm for callousness? Because that's what they're doing here. But in fact, his calm was not carelessness or callousness. It was the fact that he was in complete control. How often do we, our, our situations coming at us and we're like, oh, he must not care because he's quiet. No, it's not carelessness or callousness. It's complete control that has him calm. Then I got to thinking about it. Pretend you're one of the disciples in that boat. You know, you're freaking out. You're going, don't you care about us? But think it through. Would you rather have him sweating bullets, wringing his hands, going, uh, call the Coast Guard quick. Mayday, mayday. You don't want you to hear your Lord saying that. 
Would you rather have him freaking out the way you are, rushing to action, or would you rather have him calm, completely in control? See, I would rather have him sleeping like a baby. Now, we know the Lord, uh, in his, his glorified state right now, he never sleeps, he never slumbers. But even for them, when he was sleeping, I would have rather had him that way than have him go, oh no! Right? The second picture, the, the, the calm, even in the midst of a storm, is a beautiful thing. So, application. Maybe you're in the midst of a storm tonight. Maybe go ahead, since you're already thinking it, go ahead and ask him out loud. I mean, not right now. That might be embarrassing. But, but say, Lord, do you even care? Don't you care I'm dying here, Lord? You won't be the first one to say it. They said it. But after you say it, look at verse 7 and then decide whether you believe it. Because he says, cast your cares upon him, for he does care for you. He actually puts it in black and white. If you ever think the Lord doesn't care for you, bring out 1 Peter 5.7. He does care for you. Matter of fact, there may be times when he is the only one who's thinking about you. When he's the only one who cares for you. But I guarantee you, he does care for you. Right? You need to make a conscious decision. When he is silent, you have a choice. When he's silent, because the devil's going to want to come in and fill your head with all sorts of lies about why he's silent. But you have to decide. You have to cling to his promise. He does care for you. His calm is not because he's careless or callous toward you. It's because he's in complete control. And worry and freaking out is ineffective. It will choke out the word. It make you unproductive. It's insulting to the Lord when you think about it. And now verse 8, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Interesting, I hadn't seen this before either, but I think you can make a really good case, and I'll show you, that in verse 8, it says that worry, freaking out, is also dangerous. Hopefully that'll make sense in a second here. He says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. What do you expect Peter to say next? Run, like a girl. Right? But notice what he says in verse 9. No, he says, resist him steadfast. That means don't move. Resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. Resist there. It means to set oneself against, to withstand, to resist, to oppose. And then steadfast means strong, firm, immovable, solid, hard, rigid. So do you see what Peter's saying here? Kind of is uh, counterintuitive. Peter says, here's the deal. Your adversary is pacing. He's prowling. He's looking for which one of you he will swallow up next. So stand still. Don't worry. Be happy. Okay, he doesn't say that. But he is saying, look, I know you're expecting me to say run for the hills, but I'm telling you, stand pat. Stand still. You withstand him. Peter says, you stand strong, you stand firm, you stand immovable right where you are. Now, couple those two thoughts with 
the first word of verse 8, and it will really begin to, to make sense. The word sober there, um, it literally means to be temperate, dispassionate, circumspect. Listen, uh, the, the best definition is this, to be calm and collected in the Spirit. To be calm and collected in the Spirit. Now, Peter says, okay, there's a, a roaring lion. Stand, stand pat, be calm, collected. You guys remember? This seems to be a pattern with Peter. Anybody else remember? Chapter 4, I think it was. He has this, this tendency, this uh, pattern that, that he seems to uh, subscribe to. He says things like this. Look, I don't want you to worry. I don't want you to freak out. But the sky is falling. Okay, but just calm. Look at it, chapter 4. He says, but the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious, that is, uh, sober, watchful in your prayers. Again, be of a sound mind. Be calm and collected. The, the end of the world, as we know it, be calm. Here he says, there's a roaring lion. Be calm. The, the NIV of, of that verse in chapter 4 is probably the best translation where he says, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. That's awesome. See, Peter says in chapter 4 and in chapter 5, the end of all things is at hand. Be calm and collected. Chapter 5, your, your adversary is prowling, pacing, roaring. He's looking for a morsel to swallow up. Be calm. Be collected. Why would Peter give such paradoxical counsel? Especially in the light of Probably some of these people are actually picturing in their heads the lion that's waiting for them in the arena. Right? For, for a period of time, again, we don't know if this was exactly it or not, but we know for a period of time in the Roman Empire, the saints were re, routinely fed to the lions. And unlike the NFL, the saints never stood a chance against the lions. Get it? Yeah. Okay. Thank you. But why would Peter say, okay, your enemy, the devil, he is going to roar. He's going to blow your hair back. But don't freak. Don't run. Stand firm. Resist. Why would he give that advice? I think I found my answer illustrated for me on Sunday. It broke my heart. Thankfully, it turned out fine, but it broke my heart. Lisa remembers we had gone to a party um, Sunday afternoon, and Noah, my nine-year-old, is still deathly afraid of dogs, even little ones. And we were walking down the street to get to our car, and this little dog came yipping out into the street. Me and Noah, or me and Lisa and Isaac, stood still. Noah, afraid to death, ran. Which one do you think the dog went after? The dog, the Noah, the one who ran. Thankfully, uh, you know, the dog was harmless. Noah ran into my arms, and I wanted to communicate to him so badly. Look, when you run, you make it worse. Maybe you need to hear that tonight. When you run, when you freak, you make it worse. The enemy goes... That's the one. He says, 
Your, your enemy, your adversary is roaring, trying to get a reaction out of you, trying to make you bolt so that he can know, oh, there's the weak one. Maybe tonight, in some area of your life, the, the devil has just roared in your face. He's blown your hair back. You feel his hot breath on your face and everything in you tells you to run. Peter says, be sober. Calm yourself. Stand firm. Resist the roar. It's the best thing you can do. Now, Peter doesn't mean, obviously, to let your guard down. No, as a matter of fact, look at it. Verse 8, it says, be sober, be vigilant. That means to stay awake, to be aware. He's not saying to just let your guard down and, you know, whatever happens. He's saying to keep your eyes open, but not to freak. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. I promise you, the devil is going to, be, going to go after the one who shows the weakness by the way that he freaks out. Be sober, be vigilant. That is... Both of those things together, sober and vigilant. Uh, one uh, thought of a few ways to say it. To be calm and collected, but cautious and conscious. To not freak, but not forget that he's a real enemy. Um, be still and steady, but be ready. Be alert and aware, but don't be alarmed. Maybe another quick way to say it is be prepared, but not scared. Now, I find it interesting, maybe you've thought about this, or you're like, hmm, how does this work? You ever notice that sometimes, in regards to the wiles of the devil, the, the things that he tries with us, sometimes we're told to run, and sometimes we're told to stand? You ever notice that? We know that the devil, or, or his minions, can come in many forms, right? The Bible says the devil can come like a subtle serpent who tempts. He can come like a roaring lion who terrorizes. He can even come as an angel of light who trades the truth for lies. So we know that he comes in different forms and I think Peter has different prescriptions for the, the, that way with which he comes into your, into your uh, life. Here's what I'm getting at. It's really important for us to know when to flee and when to stay put, Right? If you run at the lion's roar, you make yourself a target. If you flee, or if you refuse to flee, when in temptation, the Bible says you're an idiot. Right? Let me put it this way. When the serpent comes, or when the devil comes as a subtle serpent who tempts, the Bible is very clear. Flee. When the serpent is all wily and clever and like, hey, come over here, I want to talk with you. That is not the time to stand firm. <laughs> That's the time to flee, right? Eve should have fled. Joseph did flee. He did the right thing, right? When Potiphar's wife tried to uh, tempt him, he fled. He even left his clothes where he was. He was the first streaker. That, that was a good thing. First Corinthians says flee sexual immorality. Okay, so temptation in general. You need to run as fast as you can the other way. Okay, the worst thing you can do when the devil comes like a serpent is to stay. But conversely, the worst thing you can do when the devil comes like a roaring lion who's threatening you is to run. 
The best thing you can do is to be to stand firm, be aware and alert, but not alarmed. Be prepared, but not scared. The worst thing you can do in that circumstance is to run. And James 4, 7 says, if you resist the devil in that way, he will flee from you. So how can we do that? I mean, it's nice to talk about, okay, the devil's roaring in your face, blowing your hair back. I just want you to stand there. How do you do that? What's that look like? How do you resist the roar? Well, verse 9 says, resist him steadfast. That means standing firm in the faith. You resist him by faith. Now, this is really important to make sure we actually say out loud, he's not talking about faith in faith. Again, that's unfortunately an epidemic throughout the church. So many people say, well, if you just have enough faith, um, and they're talking about the faith in words or the faith in faith. This is talking about the faith, the same faith that the, the saints have, have uh, been a part of for thousands of years. He's not talking about a faith in faith. He's talking about faith in Jesus. That is literally trusting Jesus when that, that lion is roaring in your face. Um, it's basically trusting in Jesus and believing the words back in verse 7 that he cares for you. That the mighty hand of God is able to move on your behalf as you humble yourself and as you trust in him. That kind of faith, not faith in faith, but faith in Jesus is all you need between you and the roaring lion. That's why Ephesians 6.16 says, Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. All you need between you and that, that roaring lion is the shield of faith. And again, not some weird nebulous faith. Belief that Jesus loves you and that he will, he will watch over you. Now, one more concept um, before we, we move on. Hopefully this will strengthen your faith as well. Um, what, do you, what do you think... Maybe don't answer this out loud. Because again, your, your idea might be different than mine. That'll be awkward. But what do you think maybe is the most scary word in verse 7? I'm sorry, verse 8. Uh, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. That's a scary word. To me, it's like, you know, just on the face of it, that's a pretty scary word. Devour, it means literally to swallow up, to gobble up. Well, it's interesting to me, and I just wanted to point it out, that there's other places where this word, swallow, are uh, mentioned in the New Testament. Hebrews 11.29 says, uh, By faith, the children of Israel passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, the Egyptians attempting to do so also, and they were swallowed up. By the Red Sea. That is, the enemy ends up being the one swallowed up. Second Corinthians 5.4, uh, Paul writing to the Corinthians, he says, For we who are in this tent, talking about our earthly bodies, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up in life. Paul saying, basically, look, it's not, I, I'm okay with dying, and it's because I know that opposite of what the devil tells me, that he's going to swallow me up, that in fact, death is going to be swallowed up. And even more to the point, 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty four, 
where Paul talks trash to death. I love that. It says, so when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. What's the biggest enemy you face? Death, right? And Paul is talking trash with the devil going, uh, death is swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your sting? Is this supposed to hurt? I love that. That's because he gets it. He understands that the mighty hand that holds him is, belongs to the, the strong arm, the, the broad shoulders, and the God who is able to swallow up his enemy, death. Okay? All right, verse 9, it says, Resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. There's another reminder. We've seen it before from Peter. The devil loves to make you feel alone. If he can get you suffering and then on top of it make you think that you're the only one, if he can get you singing that song, nobody knows. The trouble I see, nobody knows, but I forgot that next word. What is that? If he can get you doing that, he's got you right where, you want, where he wants you. He wants you to think that you're the only one um, that, that suddenly God began to drop the ball when he got to you. That's what the devil wants you to think. And Peter just says, look, one last reminder, you are not alone. This stuff, difficult stuff, hard stuff, cancer, pink slips, all of it, it happens to everyone around the world. People who are good and faithful to God all over the world suffer and struggle. God's people all over the world are going through that which you are going through. You're not the only one. So, Peter says, look, cast your cares upon him, for he cares for you. He says, resist the roar, no matter how um, every part of your being says to run. And then number three begins in verse 10, and we're going to go much quicker now. He has a prayer for the persecuted, verses 10 and 11. Peter, this, you could call this his benediction. He says, but may the God of all grace who called us to his eternal glory by, Jesus, by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while. <laughs> Peter, why did you have to include that last phrase there? <laughs> right? We'd prefer it to read, but may the God of all grace who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus through fields of poppies under skies of blue with harp music in the background. We'd prefer something like that or... Maybe, but may the God of all grace who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus after you've made your first million. No. What it says is after you have suffered a while. Now the good news is that word a while, oligos, sounds like holy ghost, um, but it's not. It means little, small, few. In, re- in reference to time, it means a short amount of time. In a g- reference to degree, it means of intensity, it means uh, very light or slight. So once again, Peter says this is an ongoing theme, and he's just kind of putting the button on it here at the end. The, the, the message, you just need to deal with it. It's just a reality. Verse 10, one more time, says, look, suffering and glory are a package deal. Suffering and glory. But he, but he says, with just that little word, a while, what he's saying is, look, when it all plays out, the suffering is light, short, small, 
compared to the glory that awaits that exceedingly abundant glory. Of course, it probably reminds you, it reminds me of Romans 8.18. It says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy even to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. Suffer a little bit. Glory forever. Okay, verse 10. But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you, have, after you have suffered a while, perfect, that means to make sound or whole, establish, that means to stabilize, strengthen, that means to strengthen, and settle, that means to settle. <coughs> to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So Peter's prayer for you. Again, he wrote this to people who were hurting even worse than we are uh, th- those many years ago. But we believe that his word is living and active, right? So amazingly enough, even though Peter has been dead and gone with the Lord now for many, many years, he still prays for you in this verse. And his prayer for you goes like this. Look, that after you suffer a little while, that he would turn your, your suffering into glory for eternity. But in the meantime, even here on this earth, that he would turn that suffering into a sound mind. A stable uh, person, right? A stability. He wants you to be able to build your life on the foundation of the rock. What, what do we say over and over again? If we apply the word, we're like those who build our house on solid rock. And when the what? Storms come our house will stand solid. So Peter's prayer for you is that at the end of it, whether your current trial is economical or health or whatever it might be, at the end of it, still on this side of heaven, you'll come out with a a more sound mind, not less. That you'll come out more stable, not less. That you'll come out stronger than you ever were before. And he says, and that the, that may settle you, that that is you may be just more grounded. You might be like, okay, I get it. The Lord has got me through all these other things. He's going to get me through this too, right? If your world is being shaken, that's my prayer for you as well. Same thing Peter prays for you, I pray for you. That you would emerge from this with a sound mind. You're like, I'm praying that too. With a sound mind, more stable more strong, more settled in, in his uh, graciousness toward you. That's the short term, but long term, that you would focus on the exceeding eternal glory that is beyond the suffering that's been guaranteed all throughout this, this book. Okay, Then, some closing comments from Peter. Verse 12, he says, By Sylvanus, our faithful brother, as I consider him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. By Sylvanus, uh, most scholars think that that is actually Silas. You guys remember Silas, right? He was Paul's buddy. Um, the, the word Sylvanus here, I looked it up, actually means Woody. That's, that was, you can call him Woody. Um, back then, the way they would write letters, a lot of times uh, the, the writer would speak. And then he would have a secretary. He had a fancy word for it called eminences. Can't say it, but I know what it is. It's basically someone who listens and they write. So apparently uh, Sylvanus, Woody, 
Silas was the secretary. Peter dictated it. Silas was the secretary. Now, Peter means rock. So you could say that Rocky spoke it and Woody (laughs) typed it. Okay, verse 12. By Silvanus, our faithful brother, as I consider him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. One last reminder of why Peter's writing this. I'm writing this to remind you, to exhort you, that though you are suffering, and the enemy is telling you over and over again, God couldn't love you. I'm writing to remind you, he does care for you. Despite all appearances, Peter says, you are the object of his true, it says, grace. And Peter, I think, to to put a button on this particular message, would say, so stand there in his grace. Don't run. Verse 13. She who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you, and so does Mark, my son. She who is in Babylon... um, we believe that's the church, uh, speaking of the, the church, the bride of Christ, um, speaking in feminine terms, right? It's basically saying the church in Babylon, uh, elect together with you, greets you, and so does Mark, my son. Now, there's a little bit of controversy. I don't know if it's, for me, it kind of falls in the category of it doesn't matter to me, so it's not really controversial. But um, whether or not the, he's writing from actual geographical Babylon, or most people think, I think if I had to, you know, choose one, I would choose this second option that he's probably writing from Rome, which is right in the the mouth of the lion. And that rather than stir up things even more for for the the saints, he's calling it Babylon as meaning the the wicked place um, where all of this this stuff is coming from. So uh, it could be that he's saying she who is in Babylon, but it's kind of code word for for Rome. Elect together with you, greets you, and then it says, so does Mark, my son. This is Mark, best we can tell. This is the same Mark that wrote the Gospel of Mark. Um, And the Gospel of Mark, you could say, is actually more Peter's account. Because Peter lived it, and then he spent, you know, apparently some time with Mark and filled him in. And then uh, Mark wrote the, the actual Gospel. But I don't know if you remember. Do you remember one more thing about Mark? If, if we're doing the math right, if it's the same Mark, decent chance that this is the same Mark that we find with Silas, Silvanus, back in, I think it's Acts 15. You remember when Paul and Silas had a falling out? They finished their first or their first two uh, missionary journeys. Yeah, I think it was their first two. Mark goes with them on, on the, I think it's the second could be wrong. He goes with them and he quits. He up and quits on the Apostle Paul, the ever-ready bunny of the New Testament. That's not, not cool with Paul. So you get to Acts 15, and Paul and Silas have this meeting of the minds, or, you know, uh, come to Jesus meeting, where Paul says, I'm not taking him. I'm not taking Mark. He's, he's a quitter. And Silas goes, he's, he's like my boy. I can't just leave him. So they decide, and the Lord uses it. Uh, Paul's going to go this way. Silas is going to go this way. Long story short, it's such a blessing to me to see Mark pop up here. And the gospel of Mark. And we know that uh, 
Paul and Mark even made up eventually, which is really cool. But my point of of pointing all that out tonight is this. If you were to quit and not hear anything more about Mark after Acts 15, I think, you just think, okay, loser, quitter. (laughs) But here, years later, you see, wow, God wasn't done with him yet. Maybe everything else that we've talked about tonight, none of it rang a bell with you. And you feel like a loser. And you've let God down. And you think you've done it one too many times. And maybe, truth be told, maybe even Paul, if he were to look at you, were to go, yeah, loser. (laughs) Jesus doesn't. There's still a future and a hope for you. If you'll embrace him. If you'll just go, okay, I messed up, Lord. Put me back on the right track. He'll, He'll hook you up with with people who love you, who get it, he'll give you a chance to minister. He'll let you have an impact in people's lives. Mark totally would have thought, well, after Acts 15, he's just going to fade. But he, he writes a gospel. That's pretty cool. That's a pretty good recovery story, celebrating recovery. right? So then he says, verse 14, greet one another with a kiss of love. That was the traditional greeting. Uh, we... we would probably say, uh, hey, give everybody there a hug for me. That's kind of what, what uh, Peter is saying. Uh, single guys, don't use this as your, uh, your pretext. It says right here, I'm supposed to give everybody... No, no, no. Greet one another with a kiss of love, and then it says, peace to all who are in Christ Jesus. And the whole church said, Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your mercy and your goodness. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you, Lord, for your instruction, Lord, on, on why you don't want us to worry and how not to worry. Thank you, Lord, for your, your wisdom on how to deal with the enemy when it comes to temptation versus persecution. Help us, Lord, not to just be hearers of your word, but doers of your word. We trust because your word is living and active and you promise not to return. It won't return to you void. We, pro- we assume, Lord, that for every single soul in this room, you have an application. You have something you're calling us to do or a decision to make or something to follow through with or whatever it might be. Lord, now, please come. Lord, you inhabit the praises of your people. Um, you give us the wisdom that we need to know. Lord, what are my marching orders from this text tonight? We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.